Well, good morning. If you would, take your Bible, and let's go together to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at the parable that we find there in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 16. It's a, it's a real joy for me to be able to be with you this, this week and to spend time with the students over the weekend just to hear the ways. Uh, when I was with them, just always asked them, tell me how you came to faith, how'd you end up here? Uh, and to hear just the many ways that God worked uh, in and through them and, and other folks to, to bring them to faith. It was, just, it was a really encouraging thing for me. It's, I've not been uh, at a service at Overland since August of 2018, which I think was still, so you remember we were in, you were in the hotel then. Uh, the, uh, I've been out, but just not been able to been in a, at a service. So it's a really sweet thing for me to be able to be here and to be in a service. Zach and I served together. I served under Zach for two and a half years at Buck Run when I first came. And I think back to those days, and I remember being with Zach uh, in a meeting or going to see somebody in the hospital or, or just doing something together. Uh, I was often with him at 10.02 in the morning, uh, and at 10.02, his alarm goes off and would remind him to pray Luke 10.2, to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the field. And he was praying even then, two and a half years before uh, Buck Run would send him out to come here, he was praying for you. He didn't know you, and you didn't know him. He didn't know what the Lord was going to do. So it's a really, man, it's a really fun thing for me to be here and to remember being with him and as he prayed and felt the Lord was calling him here and was praying the Lord would do a work here in Fort Collins, that he would draw people to himself, that many would hear the gospel and believe and be saved. So it's, it is a, just a sweet mercy of the Lord that I get to be here and to see real people and faces and names and to see the work the Lord is, is doing uh, so many years down the line. Let's look together in Matthew chapter 20. We'll read beginning in, in verse 1. Matthew writes, verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven... It's like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. And so they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who uh, had hired, been hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, those who had been hired first came. They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what, what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. A promise is only as good as the person who makes the promise. Anybody can say words, anybody can make a promise, but not everybody can keep a promise, right? There are lots of cult leaders who have promised, hey, the spaceship in the sky is coming, if you drink this Kool-Aid, we'll join them in the sky. They can say that, 
They can't keep that promise. Promise is only as good as the person making the promise. This is the process the bank goes through when you buy a house. Why do they ask all those questions about you? They're trying to figure out, are you trustworthy? Will you be able to keep your promise to pay us back? So they want to know every job you've ever had. They want to know how much money you have, how much money you're going to have, your hair color, what side of the bed you sleep on. They want to know everything about you because they're trying to figure out, will you keep your promise to pay us back? Now, when you buy a house, the bank has something we call leverage. What happens if you don't keep your promise to the bank? They take your house back, right? They've got great leverage. They're kind of protected on either side. What do you do if you're relying on a promise and you're all the way out on a limb by yourself? What do you do if you're a Jewish tax collector or a poor fisherman and you have given up everything to follow this poor rabbi around Galilee? He's made a lot of promises, right? He's talked about kingdoms and crowns and glory. He's made a ton of promises. What do you do? How, how do you know that all of these things that Jesus has promised to you, how do you know that he will be able to keep his promise? Because a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. That's what this parable is about. Now, I want you to see the progression of how we get to Matthew chapter 20. And to, to see that, we've got to go back into Matthew chapter 19. Look back in 19 with me, back to verse 16. That Jesus has been teaching his disciples that to come into his kingdom, to come into the kingdom of God, is going to require full surrender. They're going to give up everything to follow Jesus. And so we get this story of this rich, young ruler who comes to Jesus, who wants to come into the kingdom. And eventually Jesus tells him, if you really want to be saved, you want to come into the kingdom, you need to sell everything that you have and come and follow me. And in verse 22, Matthew says, he went away sorrowful. He went away sad, for he had great possessions. He'd rather keep his stuff, his wealth, than to follow Jesus. And the disciples see this, and they're shocked. And he says to them, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to come into the kingdom of God. And the disciples hear this, and they say to Jesus, Who can be saved then? If this guy who has all of these riches and has all of these advantages, if he can't be saved, Jesus, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And the disciples have just watched this rich young ruler. He walks away without Jesus, but he walks away with all of his riches intact. And it leads Peter to ask a question. And I appreciate Peter. I think Peter often voices the question that the rest of the disciples are thinking. I think Peter often voices the questions that we think. He gets a bad rap because he puts his foot in his mouth a lot. But I appreciate that he asks the questions that need to be asked. They've watched this man walk away. They've heard that Jesus says, hey, to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. And Peter asked him a question. Look in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus, we've given up everything. We have left everything to follow you. What will we have? Will you take care of us? We've given up everything. At the end of the day, will you forget us? Will you forsake us? Will we be left out on this limb by ourselves? Will we be forsaken? We have given up everything to follow you, Jesus. What then will we have? If we're honest, this is a question we often ask of Christ. I don't know what it has cost you to follow Jesus. Maybe you lost family. Maybe you lost friends. I know that you gave up 
your old life, you gave up sin, you gave up autonomy, you gave up a lot to follow Jesus. And if we're honest, this is the question we ask. Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. Are you going to keep your promise? Are you going to provide for us? Or will you forsake us? Will we be left with nothing? This is Peter's question. Will we be left with nothing? Will you take care of us? And I want you to see Jesus answers him and says, Peter, don't you worry. I'm going to take care of you. That he tells him, God will reward his people. Do you notice, he tells him in the text, God will reward his people. God is going to take care of you, Peter. Yes, you've left everything to follow me, but I will take care of you. And he says, God's going to reward you both in eternity. He says, I tell you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will be able to sit also on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, hey, in all of eternity, I'm going to reign over all this new heaven and new earth, and you're going to reign with me. There's glory coming to you at the end of all things. There's glory coming to you in eternity. God will reward you at the end of all things. But also, I think Jesus says, God will reward you here and now. He says in verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for, not, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. He says, you have given up a lot to follow me. You lost mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers. And yet he says, I will repay you a hundredfold. What is Jesus talking about? I think Jesus is talking about what's happening right now in this room. Jesus talks about the body. That he has repaid us a hundredfold in the body of Christ. Have you no mother? Look around. You've got a hundred mothers in Christ. My father has not spoken to me in a decade because of my faith in Christ. And yet every Sunday, when I gather with my church family, I look around, and I've got a hundred fathers in Christ. Have you no kids? Look around. You have a hundred kids in Christ. Jesus says, I will take care of you. I will repay you a hundredfold, both in eternity and in the here and now. And yet not only will I reward my people, not only will I take care of you, but all of this will come to you according to grace, not merit. This is what leads us to the parable in chapter 20, is that Peter and the disciples are beginning to look inward. The question, we've given up everything for you, Jesus, what then will be ours? What will we have is a question that presumes some measure of merit. Jesus, we've labored for you. We've sacrificed for you. We have earned something. What will you give us? And what Jesus is doing for Peter, what Jesus does for us, is to kindly and graciously turn our eyes away from ourself, away from our merit and our labors and our sacrifice and to turn our eyes towards Christ. How do you know that Jesus will keep his promise? How do you know that at the end of all things, you won't be left out on a limb alone? How do you know that you will not be forsaken? It will not come from looking inward. It won't come from looking at what you do for Jesus. It won't come from looking at your labors or your sacrifice. And so Jesus says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to keep all of my promises to you. And how do you know, Peter, don't look at what you've given up. How do you know that I'll keep my promise to you? You must trust my heart. You must trust the heart of God. This is what the parable of the vineyard is about. It is about learning to trust the heart of God. Christ will keep his promise. And he reveals something to us in chapter 20 about his heart that gives us a bedrock guarantee that Jesus will provide 
for his people. So if we're to trust his heart, what is it about this parable that leads us to trust the heart of God? What does he tell us about his heart in this parable that should give us confidence to trust Christ? Number one, he tells us that he is generous. The mechanics of the parable are very simple. It's a guy who owns a vineyard, and he goes out, as would be normal in the first century, to hire people to work in his vineyard. He goes, gets day laborers. He goes out early in the morning, goes out at 6 a.m., and he gets some people, and he hires them, and he agrees for a denarius, just a day's wages. It's what you would work if you were a day laborer. It's about what you would get paid. It's enough to provide for you and your family. It's enough to live on. It's not much. It's not going to make you wealthy, but you can survive on a day's wages. So he goes out early. He hires people and says, you come work a day in my field, and I'll pay you a day's wages. And then he goes out again at at 9 a.m. and at 12 and at 3, and he goes and he calls more people, and he says, hey, you come work in the field, and I'll pay you what's fair. And at the end of the day, he lines them up backwards. He tells his manager, get them and and bring the late workers first, the ones who came latest to the fields, put them at the beginning of the line, all the way back to the early workers, and pay them. And what happens to the late workers? They show up to the front of the line, probably expecting to get just a tiny fraction. Some of them had been there only an hour. And what do they get when they get to the front of the line? They get a full day's wages. Imagine you're that day laborer. Remember the last people, they're waiting there. They want to provide for their families. They want to work. And the the owner says, why aren't you working? They say, no one's here to hire us. He says, you come work in my field. If you're a day laborer, you need that money to care for your family. You need that money to put food on the table, to take care of the people that you are responsible for. Imagine you're that day laborer. You want to work. You've been dying to work. Finally, you get to go to a field, but it's just for an hour. And you're you're trying to figure out as you wait in line to get paid, how am I going to make this work? I'm going to get paid for only an hour. I've got mouths to feed. How am I going to survive for the next few days? And you get to the front of the line and you get paid a full day's wages. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, this is the heart of God. He is generous. That in the kingdom of God, God always gives us more than we deserve. Nobody in the history of the universe has ever come into the kingdom because they deserved it. Nobody in the kingdom of God gets what they deserve. Everybody in the kingdom of God always gets more than they deserve. We are all the late workers. We have showed up and we deserve so little, and yet the Father has lavished such grace and mercy upon us. He gives us more than we deserve. And because he gives us more than we deserve, it's possible for us then to not despair in all the ways that we fall short. We don't have to despair in all of our weaknesses. Often we think about, we look at our lives and we look at the the lives of other people and we begin to compare ourselves to them. If you're looking inwardly, if you're looking at your labors and your sacrifice and your merits for assurance, you will begin to look at other people. I imagine that as those late workers stood in line waiting to get paid, that they looked down the line and they saw the 6 a.m. workers. And they saw their sweat and they saw the dirt on them and they saw the, the fruit and the evidence of all of their labor and they began to think, man, I don't, I don't deserve what's coming to me. I was in the 6 a.m. I, I came in at 5. I, I came in at the end of the day. These guys have been here all day. Sometimes we look at the lives of other people and we think, man, I, I came to Christ late. These other people grew up in Christian homes and they came to faith at 7 and they've followed Jesus nearly all of their life. I, I don't deserve the grace that God has given to me. Maybe you think that even amongst the late workers, you're the late, late worker. And you're tempted to despair and to be discouraged about all the years you lived apart from Christ. All the years that you ran 
happy in your sin, and you look at the lives of others, and you're despairing and discouraged because you're a late worker, and you think, I don't deserve what God has given me. And you'd be right, because nobody who comes in the kingdom deserves what God has given us. That God has lavished grace upon us. If you begin to compare your life with the lives of the other workers in the kingdom, you will find that some will sacrifice more than you in this life. If you're looking to your sacrifice, what you give up for Christ for assurance, to, to feel some measure of, of guarantee that Christ is going to keep his promise, what you will find is that some people in this life will sacrifice more than you. I love church history. I love to learn about the history of the church and the saints throughout the ages. And I, you know, I read these stories about people like the, if you know the story of the Moravian Christians, they, these missionaries, they go to a place, they burn their boats. They sell themselves into slavery so that they can reach people for the gospel. Think about Lottie Moon who wasted away in China, literally just died because she was trying to reach people with the gospel. I read about all these missionaries, and in one sense, I'm greatly encouraged by their lives and what God did through them. And also, at the same time, I read these testimonies, and I think, I'm never going to give up what they did. I'm never going to sacrifice in the way that these people did. Even now, right now, as we gather, there are brothers and sisters all around the world who will gather together to do the same things that we're doing, to pray and to read the scriptures and to hear the word preach and to praise the Lord, but they, they gather together today under great threat. The church in China will spend three hours slowly arriving to their building at these apartment complexes where they meet, and they'll spend three hours leaving so that the authorities won't know what they're doing inside. And yet, what did I give up to be here today? What have I sacrificed? If you look to your sacrifice for assurance, trust there will always be somebody who has sacrificed more than you. If you look to your labors, if you look to your giftings, you will find there will always be somebody who accomplishes more with their gifts than you. You ever look at somebody else in the kingdom? You ever look at what God has given them, the way that God has gifted them, and the roles that God has put them in, and thought, man, I wish I had that. I wish I could do what they're doing. I know Dr. York, our senior pastor, was, was here. I don't remember when, but he, he came and preached for y'all. Every time I hear Dr. York preach, I think, man, I just wish I had his voice. I know that's not super spiritual, but he's got this deep, velvety voice. He could, like, do radio. I just think, man, I, w- I, wish, I wish that I had his voice. If I had that tool, man, I could do so much. I wish I was as smart as him. I wish that I was the natural leader and builder that Zach is. I, I look at what, he, what God has done through him here, and I think, man, I, I wish I was gifted in those same sort of ways. We're tempted to look at other people and think, man, I wish I had the giftings. If you're looking to your labors, trust, somebody else will have always accomplished more with their gifts than you. And some will sacrifice more than you. And some will accomplish more with their gifts than you. But everyone is saved by grace. No one gets into the kingdom because of their sacrifice. No one gets into the kingdom because of their giftings. Everybody who comes into the kingdom comes in by grace. Some came to work at six and some came to work at five, but all got paid the same. Trust that at the end of all things, when you stand before Jesus, when you have worked through the line and you stand before Christ to get what is coming to you, you will be shocked at all that is yours in Christ Jesus. When you see clearly and fully for the first time ever just how much love the Father has lavished upon you, just what it took for the Son to redeem you by his blood, all that the work that the Spirit has done in you, 
Listen, some of you I know may be here and think, this sounds great, but it is too late for me. I'm too far. It's too late in the day. I know you're saying God is generous, but God wouldn't want me. It's too late. I've run too far. I've I've lived this life of sin. You don't know what I'm in. You don't know how far I am from God. And I know you're saying God is generous, but it's, it's too late for me. I am the absolute last person on the planet who deserves the grace of God. Maybe you're right. But the good news is Jesus says that in this kingdom, the last will be first. Maybe you are the last person on the planet who would deserve the grace of God. And yet, what does Jesus offer you? Grace and mercy and rest. He's not asking you to pay for anything. He's not asking you to bring anything to the table. He's not asking you to earn anything. All he is saying is come to me in faith. Lay down your sin and come and rest in me. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. This is the hope of the gospel. The work day is not over. It's not too late. And you're not too far away from God. Come to him and find grace and find that he will give you more than you deserve. Yet I know that even as I give that appeal, even as I plead with you to come to Christ in faith, If we're honest, if you have been a Christian for any time at all, there might still be a part of you that hears that offer of the gospel, and if you're honest, thinks, that's not fair. You're telling me that I can follow Jesus for decades. I can walk in faithfulness and fight for holiness and serve God and sacrifice God and labor for the kingdom. You're telling me I can do all of those things and this person over here can come to faith in their dying breaths. They can live a whole life apart from God, running in their sin, seeking pleasure, and in their dying breaths, they can really and truly trust Jesus and they get the same grace that I get? Is that fair? I want you to see what Jesus is showing his disciples. He's saying to them, listen, you can trust my heart because number one, I'm generous. I'm going to give you way more than you deserve, but you can trust my heart because I'm also just. What is Jesus saying? It is fair. It is right. I want you to notice that we have the shock of the late workers who come and they get way more than they think that they deserve, but the parable also tells us about the shock of the early workers who come and think they deserve a lot more than what they're going to get. You notice what the text tells us. They're, they're in line. What are they doing? They're at the back of the line. They see these late workers. You just imagine the scene. The late workers are rolling by them, counting their denarius. And they're saying, those 5 p.m. guys got paid a full day's wage. What are the guys in the back of the line doing? They're counting their money. They're saying, we're, if he got paid a full day's wage, we're, we're going to get paid a week's worth, maybe two weeks' worth, right? We're taking off. They're making plans. They're expecting that when they get to the front, that they're going to get paid way more than they thought they were going to get paid. And they get to the front, and what do they get paid? the exact same as the late workers. And the text tells us that when they received what was coming to them, what they had agreed upon, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, you have made these last workers equal to us. And I want you to see what Jesus is saying through this this owner of the vineyard is that you have to trust that I am just, that I do what is right. Do you notice the, the heart of the answer could be summed up in verse 15. This is the answer of the vineyard owner to the workers. He says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? He says, I have committed no wrong. 
I am fully in my right to do what I choose with what belongs to me. He essentially says to them, it's my vineyard. They're my workers, and it's my money. Can I not do what I choose with what belongs to me? He is generous, and yet in everything, God is always just. Not only does he give us more than we deserve, God gives us what belongs to him. Every blessing, every grace, every ounce of mercy that has ever come to you belongs to God to do with what he wills. He's just, he's sovereign. This is a subtle rebuke to Peter. He's essentially saying to Peter, Peter, are you worried that I'm going to pour out grace and mercy on somebody that hasn't earned it like you? You worried I'm going to give something to somebody else that hasn't sacrificed as much as you, Peter? Tough. That's the sort of God I am. I'm generous. And I am right to do what I want with what is mine. I will pour out my mercy on whom I have mercy. I will pour out my grace on whom I choose. I I am a gracious God and I am generous. And you have no right to question what I do with my grace and mercy. That he gives us what belongs to him so that we should not grumble against his kindness towards others. You should notice the nature of the grumbling of these early workers. They don't accuse the vineyard owner of taking anything from them. They don't accuse him of lowering their payment. They don't accuse him of defrauding them of what they had agreed upon. Notice what they say. They say these last, uh, these last workers, this is verse 12, these last workers worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us. They're saying, we've been here all day. We've been here since six. We have borne the heat of the day. We have done all the labor. These last workers showed up at the end of the day, and why are they mad? You have made them equal with us. They're not saying you've taken anything from us, you've defrauded us. They are begrudging the kindness that the owner has lavished upon the late workers. God does what he wants with his grace and his mercy, and we have no right to grumble against the kindness of God. Whatever God has given to you in this life, whatever joys, your sorrows, regardless of how deep they may be, whatever giftings, whatever roles, whatever God in his providence has laid in your life, you must trust this, that God has done you no wrong. He says to the worker, friend, I am doing you no wrong. I have not wronged you. Others may sin against you. Others may wrong you. Trust that at the end, when all is said and done, when you stand before the Lord, you will see that he has kept every promise. Not one of them has failed. He has not wronged you. It's hard for us sometimes to see that in the moment. We look at what God is doing in other people's lives. We look at the joys and the, uh, the, all the ways that, that God is working in them, and we think, man, I wish God would give that to me. You ever look at what God's giving to somebody else, and it feels like God gave what belongs to you to somebody else? When I was in seminary, I remember I first got to seminary, I was working uh, four or five 12-hour shifts every week at Chick-fil-A, uh, and it was not my pleasure. I hated every moment of it. I just, I wanted, I didn't want to work fast food. I wanted so bad to be working in the church. I wanted to make a living preaching and teaching and serving people. And as I was in class, I'd see these other guys get jobs 
when I had to go to Chick-fil-A and get covered in chicken grease. And I, I used to get so frustrated and say, like, well, God, why did you give that guy that job? I'm so much more humble than him. I would do this so much better than him. And it felt like often God was, no, 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 God, those things belong to me. Quit giving them to other people. And I had to learn to trust the goodness and the kindness of God. And God says, I'll give you what I'll give you. And I'll give him what I'll give him. And I have not wronged you one moment. This is not a zero-sum world. In order for God to pour out grace and mercy and blessing on somebody else, he doesn't have to take a single thing from you. That's not borrowing from you to pay other people in grace and mercy. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to God. He doesn't have to take anything from you to pour out grace and mercy on other people. He has not wronged you. And so, take whatever God has given you, and for the glory of God, enjoy it. Live this life for the glory of God. I love the way that the, the owner speaks to these grumbling employees. He says, I've done you no wrong. Did I not pay you exactly what I agreed to pay you? And then he says in verse 14, take what belongs to you and go. I brought you into the field. I agreed to pay you. I have paid you fairly. I have taken care of you. Now go. Take what I paid you and enjoy it. Go take care of your family. Go do what you need to do. Take what I have given you and go. I don't know what sorrows and joys you have already endured in this life. I don't know what measure of sorrow and joy awaits you in the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years. I don't know what the Lord has for you. I don't know the way, know the way that he has gifted you by the Spirit. I don't know what he's doing in your life. I don't know what he's calling to you. I don't know the places he's putting you in. I don't know the answer to any of those things. But here's what I do know. Whatever God has given to you, he is kind and gracious and he has given you more than you deserve. Take what God has given you and find joy in this life. Think about it. In, in Luke 10, Jesus sends the disciples out. And when they come back to Jesus, they're incredibly excited. If you remember the story, they, they come back and they're, they're so excited. They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We've done all of these great things and they're so excited. And Jesus says, you're excited and happy and rejoicing in all the wrong things. Jesus says, don't rejoice. The demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Whatever it is that the Lord has, in his providence has laid in your life, joy, sorrow, happiness, sadness, suffering, victory, whatever it is that God has given to you, rejoice not in your sacrifice, rejoice not in your labor for God, rejoice not in whatever merit you think you have earned, rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. That's where real joy is. Take what God has given you and go. And don't begrudge the goodness of God. Notice how he, he ends the, the text. He says to them, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Quite literally, he says, are you angry? Do you have an evil eye because I'm good? Do you resent the goodness of God? Listen, if you look inward, if you look to your own sacrifice and your own labor and your own merit to find assurance of salvation, trust that you will, over time, begin to compare your labor and your sacrifice and your merit to the labor and sacrifice of others. And what you will find is that over time, you will come to resent the goodness of God in other people's lives. You'll be angry and frustrated that God saves sinners that you don't think are worthy. That God shows grace and mercy to people that you don't think deserve it. He says to them, would you be angry that I'm good? 
if you would begrudge the kindness of God, if you resent the goodness of God towards sinners, there might be evidence that you don't really know the goodness of God. You do not really experience the generosity of the Savior who has poured out grace and mercy upon you. That if we look inward, we will find constantly a need to build ourselves up, constantly a need to look to our sacrifice and our labor and our merit, to, to scrape and claw in vain to try to give ourselves a bigger piece of the pie, to prove that we're early workers, to prove that we put in the, the time, to prove that we're worthy to be first. We're the early workers. Here's the problem. In the kingdom of God, there is no need to be first. We don't have scratch and claw like the world to prove that we're first. Because in the kingdom, the first will be last. And the last will be first. That's how he ends, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. In the kingdom, the greatest are not the rulers. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus says, it is the servants. It's those that everybody else has overlooked. Already, by the time you get to Matthew chapter 20, Matthew has showed us Jesus pouring out grace and mercy time and time again to people who seem like the last people on the planet to deserve it. If you just read through Matthew's gospel, by the time you get to, to chapter 20, that Jesus has already shown grace to a child, to a leper, to two blind men, a centurion, a Canaanite woman, and a tax collector, just to name a few of them. But Jesus is saying, I come for the last. These are our people. We don't need to be numbered with the movers and shakers of the world. We don't need to be the influencers. We don't need fame. We don't need money. We don't need to be thought well of by the world. What we need is faithfulness to Christ. We are happy to be in last place. Let the whole world put us on the bottom of the totem pole. We are fine to be last because in the kingdom, the last will be first. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, are you worried? Are you worried that at the end of all of this, you're going to be left out to dry? Are you worried that in a crooked generation that I'm going to forget you? That I'm going to forsake you? That in the end, all of your labor and all of your sacrifice will be in vain? That, that you will be forsaken? Are you worried? What then will you have? He says, I will, I will take care of you. I will trust you. You can trust me. You can trust that I will keep all of my promises, not because you deserve it, not because you've sacrificed, not because you've earned it, but because I am generous and I am just. I will pour out my mercy on you and I will do what is right always. You see, the question for us is not the question of Peter. The question should not be, what then will we have? That's not what we should be asking. Jesus, we've given up all these things for you. Well, what are you going to pay us? What have we earned? What then will we have, Jesus? That is not the question. The question is this. Who do we belong to? That's the only question that matters. You think about those late workers. The day after they get paid, where do they want to go work? In that man's field. And they don't care what time he hires them. And they don't care what hourly wage he's going to pay them. They don't care what they're asked to do. They don't care what everybody else is doing. They don't care what time anybody else gets there. They're just happy to be in his field. What matters is who do you belong to? If you come to Christ in faith, and if you are united to Christ by faith, he will keep his promise. Not because you've earned it, and not because you deserve it, but because he is generous and he is just. 
you can trust the heart of God. A promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And the promises of Christ are sure. And so I am convinced that there is nothing in all of the universe that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. For his promises will hold all the way until the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have given us. You have been rich in mercy with us. You have given us much more than we deserve, and we thank you for it. Father, we pray that even now we would have greater eyes to see and ears to hear all of the, uh, the riches that you have given to us in Christ. Father, I pray even now for those who may be here who have never trusted you, who might feel that it's too late for them. Father, I pray that they would see a crucified and risen Savior, that they would run to him in faith, that they would see the mercy and the grace and the rest that awaits them in Christ. We pray that today you would call them into the field, that they would find all that awaits them. We confess to you that you are our only hope. And we trust you to keep all of your promises. And so we ask even now that you would keep us all the way into the end. Just as your word tells us you will. And we pray all this in the name of your son. Amen.